Bradley Then and Now, exploring the college archives in conversation with our community. So welcome everybody. Today we're bringing you the next in a series of our Radley Then and Now archives events, this time focusing on the game of rugby over the years at Radley. Football has been played at Radley since the school was founded in 1847, but it wasn't until 1853 that Radley created a game commonly known as Radley Football and played their first ever match against an unnamed Oxford College, probably Exeter, and the rest, as they say, is history. Claire Sargent, our archivist, will shortly take you on a tour through the history of rugby over the last 170 years and how it has evolved into what we see today. Over to you, Claire. Hello, it's really good to be here today. And one of the reasons why we're looking at rugby is because in 1823, according to the legends of rugby school, Webb Ellis picked up a ball and ran with it. And so they have been uh, celebrating the bicentenary of the history of rugby, uh, and particularly of rugby union, which is one of those things which has evolved over time. Radley's own history of playing rugby formally is just over 100 years old, uh, but we have still an illustrious history. And we have, uh, just to begin, a couple of illustrious members as well. I believe we've got Nal Murphy on, online and Nick Wood. Uh, and Nick, you're our current master in charge of rugby, having played for Gloucester and been selected for England. Uh, would you like to tell us briefly how how is the season going this year? Um, Nick's not joined yet. Uh, Niall, then, can I ask you the same question? Um, so, uh, so far, so good. Um, the team, unfortunately, have lost a couple of games. They lost to Eton just before... Um, uh, leave away and they uh, lost to Tunbridge. Um, first two or three games went very well, but uh, as far as big side is concerned, those two games, close games, but defeats. There is a chance to avenge the Tunbridge defeat when we play them again uh, in about three weeks time. Uh, we play Tunbridge home and away now. Um, <clears throat> and in terms of the club as a whole, we are fielding, I think, 23 teams we have uh, midgets level, we have uh, competitive contact rugby, midgets one to six, and we have midgets seven and eight who play touch or tag rugby. We've got JC one to five in the remove year. We've got Colts one to four in the fifth form, and then we've got six senior teams. So the club is in good health and uh, lots of people are uh, still playing. That's excellent. That's uh... That defeat by Eton is, is an Eton revenge, because if we go back to 1918, Eton were actually the first school that we ever beat at rugby after four years of uh, playing. So obviously they're, they're battling, battling their to keep their reputation going. Uh, and one of the things was that you were part of that winning coaching team back in 1995, which was the second time, and I believe the last time that we had a completely undefeated season. What was that like? That must have been very, very early on in your career at Radley. Uh, I started here in 93. So um, it was my second uh, second season of uh, rugby, as it were. I'd done the uh, Colts 2 with uh, a French assistant called uh, Eric Orcard, who had come from Biarritz and was a great rugby player himself, played France under 23s and French universities and so on. So we had a great season with Colts 2 back in the day. And then uh, those players then went uh, the, the two years later, they were the 6-2 year that uh, were the bulk of that unbeaten season. In fact, I think the entire team were 6-2 barring one or two players. It was uh, Ed Jennings in the centre and Sam Henley on the open side flank. So I think there were 13 of the of the normal squad were uh, uh, 13 or 14 were 6-2 uh, and two or three were 6-1. It was a it was a good season. Uh, Richard Greed and I did the side together. Richard did the forwards. I did the backs, and we had uh, players who would then go on and do great things. So Ross Jennings went to Durham University and then uh, got a blue at Oxford. Uh, Ed Jennings, his younger brother, played uh, professional rugby league for London Broncos and played union as well in London. So it was a good, really good side. Um, uh, James Johnson played. Uh, James Johnson went on to play um, 
um, England age group rugby, as did a chap called Ben Spiegelberg. Um, so they, they were a very good side. Um, the, probably the toughest game we had was against Cheltenham. That was here. And they had a chap on the wing called Simon Daniele, who ended up playing uh, rugby for Scotland. Uh, we managed to uh, to win that, I think, by one score. That was the toughest game we faced. It was quite uh, significant for Richard Morgan as well, having been at uh, Cheltenham only a few years before. Uh, so he was very invested in that game. Um, and then I think the last game was against rugby uh, and we played it at home and we won. So uh, we had the old scoreboard. We've now got an electronic scoreboard, but the old scoreboard was then uh, put up to say 11 nil. So 11 fixtures, uh, all won and uh, lots of photographs taken under the, the um, scoreboard and so on. The nice, the, the sort of final act was that, um, Bear in mind, this was really in the infancy of uh, email and social media and so on. Uh, Henry McCowan, who had captained the previous uh, unbeaten season, uh, turned up on the day with a case of champagne, which was rather nice and uh, unexpected and uh, great research. I don't know how he managed to find out all the results in the days before websites and so on. So it was a fitting end. And those those guys, that the, the bulk of that squad, we still meet um once a year or so for a reunion, myself and Richard and the bulk of those guys, slightly nerve wracking that uh, two of them are now Radley parents and uh, I'm teaching their sons, which makes me feel enormously old. But um, yeah, Did we have a, a couple of questions there from uh, in the audience or was that just okay. a hand raised? Simon or David, did you want to ask something or were you just raising your hand? No, that was, we were just waving at each other. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. No, that's absolutely fine. You wave away. I'll, I'll stop now. Sorry, now. Um, <laughs> he was my I mean, scrum half. Uh, oh, lovely. So, <laughs> subsequent subsequent sides have come close. I think uh, one or two sides have lost just one game at big side. Um, we have very high hopes for the current 6-1 who got to the uh, under-15 national semi-finals a couple of years ago. Um, so we'll see. But I would say that rugby is in rude health. I hope I've actually got to go and teach, unfortunately. But um, I think Nick's in the same boat. But we'll come on for a few minutes, Claire, to give you a bit more of an update, if that's OK. Thank you very much, Niall. That that was really good to get, get an overview of both the current season and that uh, that continuing history, which is still there as part of history uh, as part of our rugby story so i hope the lesson goes well Have thank we you very much thank you everybody okay. Bye -bye. Bye. okay so what we'll do is i'll share the screen here uh, we can talk about how it is that we actually came to be playing rugby at all as caroline said there was some form of football played Back in 1847, uh, at this point, the school only, when we started, we only had three boys uh, and four staff. And so playing football or cricket was a really difficult thing. But actually, one of the reasons why Singleton and Sewell chose uh, the site at Radley was because of the wonderful sward of grass in front of the mansion, which could be used for games, could be used particularly, in their view, for cricket, but coming on to play uh, some form of football. And by 1853, they'd begun to formalise something which came to be called Radley Football, which originally had 15 players. Eventually, it came down to 12. And in from the spectators, it looked a lot like the Eton Wall game. You look at the rules of it, it resembles something that Harrow were playing at the same time. Uh, so one of the issues always was how to formalize sport across clubs and schools, across universities, so that people could play against each other to a set of recognized rules. So if you're playing entirely um, a football-based game just with uh, feet, and then you play rugby and they pick the ball up, that's obviously going to make a big difference to how you play. But Claire, Claire, they, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to let you know that Nick had joined the call, just in case you hadn't spotted that. And you wanted I to haven't spotted that. Shall we invite Nick to come and talk just for a few moments then? Uh, Nick, uh, if you're there, I'll stop this sharing and we'll invite Nick on. Hello. Um, Hello. Sorry, just checked in for two minutes before teaching period four. Uh, welcome to everyone. Uh, for those that don't know, I run the rugby 
um, here at Radley. And I once wore one of those wonderful red and white shirts um, that you could see on uh, Claire's presentation just then. Um, I think it's fantastic. And thank you, Claire, for putting this together in celebration of 200 years of the sport uh, and 109 years uh, of the sport uh, at Radley. Um, while you've got me, I suppose, are there any questions you'd like to ask about uh, if it's if it's historic, sort of pre-1996, perhaps other than tales of unbeaten teams, uh, Claire might be the person to ask. Uh, but anything about Radley rugby currently or in the last, um, well, let's say this millennium, um, please do far away in the, the sort of two minutes. See a question from Peter. If you play from Gloucester, you're not teaching them the dirty tricks you used to use when you played Bath, are you? I come from Bath. And as you know, well, you know all about Bath Gloucester, don't you? I'm sure you behave yourself uh, more seriously. Um, what can you and what can't you coach if you've been at somewhere like Gloucester or another menacing premiership team, Nick? Uh, well, I think the first thing to say is that those dirty tricks weren't just reserved for Bath. It was you know, Everyone got equal treatment. Um, I, I really did enjoy those. You know, some of my best friends outside of uh, the club that I played for are from Bath. Um, it, you know, the fixture was huge. It meant a lot to all of us. Uh, I suppose the answer in terms of what you can coach to the boys, it depends on what shapes your view of school rugby. What are you actually trying to coach? What are you trying to achieve? Why would you... Um, coach anything cynical or negative if the, other than the, you know, beyond the sport itself there are bigger lessons to be learnt and you know, rugby is being played as in a school as part of a school setting so my answer is I don't coach them the dirty I coach them hopefully the proper technique really spend a lot of time educating on laws and what needs to be done and it helps when others other teams potentially don't adopt the same approach against us they know how to deal with it they understand the law it's a good lesson that not everything is going to go your way and you need to find alternative solutions to deal with a particular problem. But the answer is, I see it as a pure game in the school and therefore I coach accordingly. I'm not coaching purely with the aim of winning. I hope that the brand we play will deliver victory more often than not. Um, but if it doesn't, it's not because... Well, sorry, if it does deliver victory, it's not because I've, I've put that at the top of, the, of everything. And I think if it is... Certainly my belief, if it is at the top of everything, that can have a detrimental effect on how you go about your coaching because everything is results-driven, not about a number of people playing, you know, the, the sort of symbiotic relationship between performance, development, and uh, participation. You know, in, in sort of varying measures, depending on where you are and who you've got available to you and who you're playing, um, but there's always a sliding scale between those three. And for me, it's um, it's a pure game. There's no, I'm not offering a contract at the end. I'm not uh, saying you've not made it. You know, the, the worst news they're going to get is that you're not playing for big side this week or something. It's not your livelihood is going to be impacted. Mm. Very good answer. Thank you. And it's it's great to have a, a front row forward coaching. There's not enough of them around. Of course, Peter Johnson was a front row forward. Indeed. Um, and uh, But I think before Peter Johnson, Radley wasn't quite sure about front row forwards at all. Well, I, well next year, I'll, I'll thank, uh, I need to thank Pete for... Um, his legacy in that sense, then. Uh, I'm conscious that my, my shelf sets are waiting outside, desperate to learn about the origins of British India. So um, thank you and apologies that it was so brief. Very good to see you all. Thank you, Nick, very much. Thanks, um, one of those things to be aware of always is that uh, it's that, um, that idea of the beauty of sport, the moral beauty of sport is actually embedded there in the, in the school's ethos. It's one of the four principles of Radley with uh, Christianity, privacy, collegiality, and beauty. And sport itself comes in right at the very beginning there. Uh, again, going back to Singleton and Sewell, that the boys should be learning what Nick is calling the pure game, purity of the game. Whether they achieve that all the time is up to you to tell us. So let's go back a little bit into the history again. So we had a game which was being played with um, 15 players, maybe 12 players. It looked almost like gra gradually into the 1870s and so on. It looked a lot like association football. And there was an attempt to, when, when uh, the football association was started in 1871, to get the public schools to join in with it. And, and there were quite a few who did. Um, Charterhouse particularly, I think. Um, but when Radley were asked, uh, 
they were described as nearly association. And the answer that they sent back was to say that we'd, we'd love to, but we really wish all the schools would play the same rules. And if Eton, Harrow and Rugby would give up their separate rules, other schools might be induced to follow their example. So if we could get a core of groups, but unfortunately, of course, from the point of view of association, uh, that group included rugby, who were very, very committed to their own to their own game. So what we end up with is um, the school colours of um, of cherry and white, white, pink and white, the sort of very distinctive Radley colours coming in from that uh, that actual sport of Radley football, and that carries right the way through to today. Uh, and there's a lovely letter in the Radleyan from a what's described as a very young boy uh, who will be what we would now call a shell probably. But actually at that time, boys started considerably younger than 13. So he could be anything from eight years old and upwards. Uh, and he was begging that the school did not use red as its football team color because he felt that when he was out in the field on the pitches, there was a bull in the field next door and it was really taking a lot of interest in the small boys running around wearing red. So choosing your color becomes quite an important thing. And one of the other things we'll look at a little bit is, is how you choose your emblems and symbols. But actually deciding to move into a rugby union, there were calls from 1904 onwards to start to say, let's have rugby as our school game. And the reason being that uh, association was becoming an increasingly professional sport. And this was perceived as, as really unfitting for amateur gentlemen. So we, from 1907, we get a, a, a letter again in the Radleyan advocating a, swi a switch to rugby union. And actually, the grounds given there was that it was easier to become proficient at rugby than at soccer. Uh, and the soccer team at the time were actually really woeful. They were losing pretty much every match. So there was a general feeling that this is not a good place. And so we get a letter from uh, one boy, or I suspect actually from a Don, although it says a boy, after one game and a diligent study of the laws of rugby football, I found I was no longer a novice. I could drop kick with tolerable accuracy, take and give passes, find touch and tackle a little. After three or four games, I was quite a proficient player. So uh, this is all it takes, three or four games and you become a proficient rugby player, supposedly. But what it does have from the school's point of view is the advantage of 30 players on the field at one time rather than 22. So that includes a lot more boys being uh, uh, out there playing a game. More senior boys could win those very coveted caps. All the games had to have a referee, so that's somebody else. And since the game was new to most of the boys, there had to be taught dons who could teach it, explain it, and even play it. So you've got a whole school which is actually becoming committed by 1907 or 10 to the idea that we're going to introduce rugby as a sport. And they had a vote. So the majority of the school, more than half of them, were in favour of switching to rugby from soccer. This is uh, in 1910. In 1913, the rugby 15, who were still unofficial, uh, played common room. So that argues there were sufficient rugby players in common room and their friends. They could amass a team as well, given that there were only 24 dons at the time. And there's a general enthusiasm for it. You're beginning to get dons like uh, Sam Hales, who had played at rugby. He played for the Harlequins. He played for Monkstown. Uh, he also rode for Oxford. And there was a, a link where we have a, a, a sort of slight tension still about uh, the wet, between the wet bobs and the dry bobs. And when rugby was first introduced, the idea was that actually, rather than impinge on the work of the soccer team, who were the dry bobs who then become the cricketers in the summer, only rowers, only the wet bobs are allowed to play rugby because they, they need a sport when they can't row. So you're balancing things all of the time. 
And then we get to 1914. In 1913, a new warden was appointed. He was Edward Gordon Selwyn. He was the youngest warden we've ever had. He was in his late 20s when he came as warden. Most of the dons at the time were around about the same age, so it's a very young common room. Uh, he's come from Eton. And what he did was that he had a meeting of common room where they discussed whether or not they're going to switch the school sport from soccer to rugby. And although the schoolboys had already voted, from the point of view of the, uh, the dons, they didn't reach a conclusion. They were sort of still arguing about it. And I think it's part of this thing about whether or not you're going to take wet bobs or dry bobs, who are going to actually be playing this sport and how it impinges on the other sports which are being played. What uh, Selwyn has also been asked to do by council is to reform the school. It had got a real atmosphere of sporty bloodism. So it was only the top sportsmen who were being revered, not the top academics, the musicians or anybody else. And they were very much into swagger and so on. So the school was a little bit out of control. So Selwyn's approach, he's been asked to academically reform the school. He's been asked to think about how he can do that. And actually what he does is that he uses rugby as a way of total school reform. And it's the undoing of him. Because the first thing that he does, having had this common room meeting, is that he puts up outside of the school, which is now the library, the most controversial message, that note from a warden ever pinned up. This is not, uh, the king has died, this is not uh, a war's been declared or peace has arrived, any of those things. It was a notice put up by Selwyn without discussion with the boys or with Common Room, Rugger will be played next season. And that's it. He just simply announces it. And that irrevocably undermined his position with Common Room. Because basically, although they want this change, most of them, the fact that it's been implemented without their collegiate agreement means that they actually withdrew their support from the warden. And obviously, if we're looking at the date, this is February 1914. This is a date when a warden who's newly appointed is going to need every support he can get from his common room. The senior boys, and obviously this is aimed at the senior boys, it's aimed at those, those soccer bloods. They're the boys who've been running the school, and this is aimed at them. They lose their power base because we now have to develop a rugby team who haven't got uh, any background in this. They're a new group of boys. And what we end up with is the team that you see in front of you here, the Rugby 15 for 1914. This is the school's first ever group. And they're drawn from uh, some of the soccer players, but also some of the uh, boats, uh, the, the rowers. And you see the gaps where there should be somebody. And the names tell you who they are. So we've got DD Rake, DT Rakes, who should be here in the middle, absent. Above him, Ian Griffith, the back row there, absent. Heyman Joyce, who should be here, absent. Three of them have already left for the Western Front when this photograph was taken. So had two of their coaches, Sam Hales, who'd been really keen to introduce rugby, uh, and Lance Vidal. And of this team, their first match against another school was going to be Sherbourne in November 1914. That was cancelled because Sherbourne also couldn't muster a whole team. So it wasn't play, they didn't actually play a match against another school until 1915, but this is our first team. And of this team that you're looking at there, seven of them and three of their coaches did not survive World War I. And the captain, Bucknell, in the middle, did survive World War I, but he became 
He, he fell in World War II. Langford Sainsbury, over here in the corner, became one of the first Air Vice Marshals. And in 1919, he brought one of the first RAF rugby teams uh, to play. They came to play Radley because he brought them over. So Radley started playing rugby without any training, in the teeth of a war situation, all sorts of things going on. And it wasn't until 1918, as I said, when we were talking with Niall, that they actually won a match because basically they're learning how to do it. You get a lot of, uh, a lot of notes through the Radleyan itself. So little letters, probably written by the dons and the coaches. So you've got things like the forwards are learning the necessity of keeping the ball, which I'm not a rugby player, but I would imagine that keeping the ball is a vital thing in any rugby match. But they're still slow in following up and inclined to watch a dribble from behind instead of backing up hard, ready to take the ball on, and so on. They're talking about scrums, which they still played at this time. Also realize they cannot get the ball without shoving, and they cannot win if they don't get the ball, and they don't shove hard enough. But actually, it takes them a while. So it's the boys who are juniors in 1914 who become that team in 1918 who first beat Eton. And that's our first ever win. And then they become old boys. So from 1925, I don't know how many of you on the call now are members of the Swallows Club, uh, which renamed itself the Serpents, I think, in about uh, 2014 when we had the centenary of rugby. Uh, this is the first photograph of the Serpents, the Swallows, and their first match against the school. And you can see already we've got this enormous swallow, which is their symbol. If we go back to the back to the Serpents, you can see here on the very first team, they've got no symbol on their shirts. But actually, by the next year, 1915, they've adopted the serpent symbol. So we've got the team, the swallows, swallows playing, and swallows uh, have celebrated their 75th anniversary and are now heading towards their centenary in a couple of years' time. And rugby becomes very much what's played. I love this sketch and the little note on the back of it about Murray McGowan, aged 15 or 16, who should have been doing his evening prep, but instead is drawing cartoons of rugby. And it's the 1930s before we start to get international matches and touring. This is the very first school ever to tour with rugby. This is the King's School Parramatta in Australia. Uh, they came across, they played most of the public schools, and they won every match apart from two, one of which was the match against Radley, where they, who won 10 points to three. So that's the Australian tourists. Adley still not doing any tours for quite a long time, and we'll come to those in a minute. And the hardest fought match ever, probably, on Radley's ground is against Eastbourne. So Niall said he doesn't know how people find out about the scores, but here you've got, actually, that rugby football in the schools was so important that it's actually recorded with a write-up in the Times so this is the Eton Rugby, the Eastbourne Radley match in 1940. Here are the team's signatures for 1940. Uh, and they were given to us by Old Radley and AJ Round. The thing about this match is that at the time, Eastbourne, as many of you will know, were evacuated to Radley. So Big Side became the home ground for both teams. So this is probably the only time you have had every member of Radley and every member of Eastbourne on the sidelines, cheering on and fighting for the match. And the score, well, the match was actually won by Eastbourne, according to the scoring system of that time. Scoring has now changed, and the result would now be that Radley won the match. It's that close a match. So we've got this lovely match versus Eastbourne. But 
But then we start to professionalise our rugby altogether. And I'm sure very many of you will remember Guy Stuart Morgan. We have a couple of things come up in chat. Is there something on chat uh, that I can't see? No, I can't see anything. No, okay, thank you. Uh, Guy Stuart Morgan. Now we had great difficulty finding a photo of, of, of Guy of Guy Morgan. He doesn't appear in any of the team photos for his teams from Radley from 1931 1956. He was tutor of A Social, and we've no A Social photos that show him. And I suspect it is because with most of these we have this thing that he's in his electric chariot in a wheelchair because he's crippled with arthritis. But actually, he's probably at the time one of the most prestigious rugby coaches for a public school in the country. Probably the finest centre three quarter in the British Isles, four years in the Cambridge 15, eight international caps for Wales, captain of Wales, captain of Cambridge, and cricketer for Glamorgan. So, what he's bringing is this international Welsh rugby standard to Radley. And what he achieves is his 1952 squad. So we have John Scott, who went on to play for England. We've actually got uh, Ted Dexter, who obviously played cricket for England, Leo Cooper, and... C.E.B. Carr, the captain, who all went on into uh, sporting careers or sporting notoriety. A lot of them went on to become Blues for Oxford or Cambridge as well. So Guy Morgan's 1952 squad is really showing what happened. And we have a memory that was sent to us by Michael Bortry, which is really talking about social rugby. So this is the first uh, 15 from 1955. So what he says is that in early December 1955, we in G Social had reached the Inter-Social Rugby Contest final. I was head of social, and our team was lucky enough to have the first 15s, Noel Slowcock. So Noel Slowcock should be somewhere on this team. And the first 15s, Fly Half, Nick O'Shaughnessy. The night before the match, our social tutor, Raymond King, called the three of us into his study and said, I have an idea for the match tomorrow. We looked at each other in some surprise. Raymond King was an enthusiastic supporter, but we never thought of him as a rugby strategist. He said, we have a good, powerful scrum led by Noel and can get the ball out to a scrum half with him passing on to you at fly half, Nick and so on, out to the wing. But these three quarters are each one of them heavily marked by their opposite number. And if the ball gets that as far as the wing, it's usually brought down before you can make a try. What I'm suggesting is that Michael Bawtry, as fullback, run up inside the wing and he passes to you. There'll be no one to mark you. You should be able to run through and score. So this manoeuvre at the time was highly unorthodox. Noel Slowcock, who was a sternly orthodox player, had serious doubts about it, but we agreed to give it a best shot. And Michael Bawtry scored two tries by a fullback. They won the match. That evening, a group of us went out onto the pitches in the gathering darkness and in our joy, replayed our two wins in slow motion. Noel went on to Oxford, as did I after each of us had done our national service. Nick O'Shaughnessy, a brilliant cricketer and rackets player, was younger than we were, and a year later was chosen to be head boy of the school to start the following term. While practicing for the public school's rackets championships at Queen's that December, he fell sick with polio and within a week was dead. 70 years later, I still remember and honor him. And Michael was keen that we should still remember Nick O'Shaughnessy. We should still honour him. And that we should really remember the impact of polio, particularly on that early 1950s cohort and the effect that it had on so many of you. Uh, we have a, a memory also from Peter de Soberis, who started with Rush 
uh, Thompson in the Colts, taking on after uh, Guy Morgan, filling his boots and then some. And one of the things that we have to think about really is, is this idea of, of passing on the baton of coaching. So we go right the way back to 1914. We've got Sam Hales, who played at rugby, who played for the Harlequins. Um, actually, one of those uh, also was uh, Bert, who went on to become the first headmaster of um, uh, bishops in South Africa. And uh, Radley have since played bishops in, a, in an unbroken stream of rugby there. So it hands on from one person to another. And we've got the English public schools. We can now add Stuart, who's playing for England at the moment. So quite a lot of people who are there to think about. Simon Sanders sent us a message about the team of 1964. And what he said was that he actually... He should have left school in 1964 after his A-levels, but his parents allowed him to stay on for the winter term because he did, wasn't going anywhere else until early 1965 so that he could play for the first 15. And you'll notice here is the first 15 of 1964. And having stayed on for an extra term, he actually there was a better player coming up who was Richard Morgan and... Mike Lewis at number eight. And Mike Lewis had the unenviable task to see me before chapel to tell me that I was being dropped. So having stayed on a term, he actually played for the seconds and not the first 15. So there's a lot of bittersweet memories here. For people. And then we have the idea of passing on the baton of coaching so this is Richard Greed's talk about taking that on. The 1965 team, I'm sure a lot of you will remember James Batten and getting together sometime in the uh, 2000s. And I left Mansion realizing how precious was the master in charge of rugby Batten, how this had been passed down for generations. And here is... James Batten passing on the rugby baton. One of the things that we have digitized are his coaching books. And I know when at uh, 2014, when we had the, um, the centenary of Radley Rugby, that 1965 team went to James and they got hold of those uh, coaching books and he was very reluctant to let them go uh, as we were able to make a digital copy of them which is a really, really good thing about the history of schoolboy rugby is how you pick your teams, how they're playing, and so on. And, uh, but we had to give them back because he was determined to keep them. And a couple of uh, uh, last year or so, uh, I was asked by his uh, school he became headmaster of, which as I think was King's School Worcester, uh, and they wanted a photograph from us of James Batten and Rugby. And this one, where he bet the Peter, social... Peter, did you want to say something? No, it was King's Taunton, and he transformed the school. I was latterly a governor. Forgive me coming in, but he did a magnificent job at King's Taunton. Thank That's you. it, yes. Thank you very much. Yes, I was trying to remember uh, uh, which it was. So King's Taunton. Uh, uh, this was... Uh, I think the only rugby photo we had that we could send them to include in his biography. So there's James Batten. Then we had a memory from Tom Silk. Uh, you can see the team that he's playing, which includes Sheesby, Julian Beck, Adam Fox, Gregor Tate, Gary Denman, Tom Silk himself, bang in the middle there. I'm actually here. You're here, Tom, yes. Do you want to talk about the story that you had? Well, I have a brief, I have a brief story to share, which I just thought you might find probably more humour than anything else. Um, and firstly, you're right to say um, you, you might have mentioned the the photograph that um, provides the sort of the home page. It probably exemplifies my sort of undistinguished uh, rugby career in the sense that I, I was fortunate to play for the 15 for a couple of years um, while my father um, 
stood behind the posts um, doing the scoreboard, um, that picture actually um, represents, I think I was dropped the game before that. So it's actually, the hooker is Simon Cox. Um, and Simon very ably stepped into my position um, after I was dropped in my first year. Um, the story I, I wanted to share was um, was a story that was probably close to my father's heart, probably not in a, a brilliant way in the sense that um, Sherburn uh, back in my day, which was the 1980s, was the team to beat. And indeed my father in 19 years at Radley um, had never beaten Sherburn at home. Um, so the hopes of the of the school lay with the 15 of which I was a part and it was a great game. And in fact, um, they had a chap called Abdul Cardooni who went on, lost his passport, we think, um, never quite sure how old he was, but he went on to a distinguished uh, career as a rugby professional. And before we knew it, we were 10 points down. Um, after they'd sort of got off the bus, we, we clawed our way back into that game. And with two minutes on the clock, Radley was 13-10 up. And uh, it was at that point that <clears throat> um, a, a chap happened to try to do something to me in the bottom of a ruck. And I grabbed his shirt, clocked his number, um, and on passing by um, in the dying moments, I happened to, to tread on him, um, which was a foolish thing. It actually happens to be, and this is a <laughs> another bizarre coincidence, it's the, the guy now does the ITV News, so I get to see him on a regular basis. It's Tom Bradby, was the, uh, was the Sherban flanker. Um, but anyway, I got called up, the referee blew the whistle, 13-10, and Sherban had a chance to tie the game. Um, not an easy kick, uh, but the guy made it, uh, and it was a tied game. And uh, needless to say, um, as I walked off the pitch, I could see my father in deep conversation with PMJ, and uh, and he looked at me across the pitch, and and shook his head, and turned away, um, and and walked off. I just think he probably didn't feel capable of sharing his emotion at that point. So this was a fairly traumatic experience for me and something that um, sort of remained with me up until I had the chance to go to university in, in North America. Bizarrely, I, I went on a, on a scholarship program and uh, the very first person I met on arrival was another Brit who was on the same program and he entertained us freshmen. He was a year ahead of me. And he entertained us. And um, in conversation, initial conversation, he said, I know you. To which I said, I looked at him, I'm absolutely certain. I had no idea who this guy was. He said, um, let me give you a let me give you a help. I went to Sherburn. <laughs> to which I go, oh God. Um, and suffice to say, not only did he go to Sherburn and play in that 15, he was the guy who kicked the penalty at the end. Um, so needless to say, um, this story followed me for the four years at Carolina. We became fast friends, in fact, and he was the best man at my wedding. Um, but the the output of that is that despite my best efforts to put this story behind me, whenever we're together and, and certainly when anyone goes, um, so when did you, you guys are friends? When did you guys first meet? A and I sort of scramble around and talk about well, North Carolina. He's very quick to point out that actually, no, 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 that's not quite true. We met before then. Um, and he gets to tell this wonderful story of his heroic kick um, while I sort of uh, shuffle off and. Um, Yes, and, and bear the pain. So uh, I just thought I would share that. It's my therapist said that if I shared that with more people, the, the, um, that, that, would, that would be helpful. So I seized on this opportunity and was very happy to, 
to share. Needless to say, my father got over it in the end. So it's all good. Thank you, Tom. I'm, I'm very glad that we're able to um, ha have a role in, in therapy for you. <laughs> Claire, Peter wanted to say something. Yep. Thank you. Apologies to interrupt you again. But nice to see you, Tom. Uh, your admirable tutor, Anthony Hudson, uh, did a, a, a brilliant job um, as master in charge of rugby. And uh, just before he took over, my first meeting, do you mind me raising the matter of your dear father, who was such a great encourager to dons like me, young dons. As a 23-year-old don in my first term, uh, we heard the announcement about our new warden, who was currently teaching at Walborough. You would hardly remember. I can't remember which year you were born. But um, I came down as a very young green don with Malcolm Robson, Robinson, who was a remarkable coach, had a, quite an impact on uh, uh, on Radley Rugby. And uh, we went down to Marlborough a week after we heard who our new warden was to be with the Junior Colts 15. Who was coaching Marlborough Junior Colts but Dennis Silk? So you can imagine the extra training that went in as we wound the guys up. Your new warden is running the team you are facing. Uh, you will remember, may not remember Malcolm Robson, but he's quite a character. Down we went to uh, Marlborough and we played. The team played remarkably well. They were a good team. I still remember your gracious father striding up to congratulate the Radley boys and then to Malcolm and me. And he said, you were magnificent. The consolation for me is this. Your boys will be my boys next year. Uh, it was the way he said it. You know, these guys are good. I'm taking them over. Uh, my first encounter with your father, who took me and Malcolm back to tea in C1 at Marlborough. First memories. Were you alive then in 1967? Well, I was born in 67, September. So, um I yeah. saw you in a pram in C1. There, there was a pram under the stairs. So that was you. Right. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you, Caroline. Thank you, Peter. Well, thank you all. Uh, and one of the people there as part of that team was, of course, Cheesby, um, who went on to play for Wasps, Harlequins, London Irish, and to win seven England caps between 96 and 97. So he's probably our most uh, prestigious rugby player to date. But actually, there are quite a lot of other names. Um, so the England Sevens squad won the World Sevens title at Murrayfield in 93, with she's be there as vice captain. But that also brings us on to tours. So having had this King School in Parramatta coming way back in 1936, it was 50 years before Radley actually went on an international tour, and that's linked to cheaper air flights and so on. So we end up with uh, the first tour was in 1986 to Canada. The next was the Japan tour in 1987. So they're really uh, spreading their wings around the world. Uh, and there are some fairly um, hefty descriptions of this Japan tour it was uh, televised ac across Japan. People were really following what was going on here. And in 89, we had Simon Brown was telling us about the New Zealand and the Fiji tour of 1990. This is Johnson's, Peter Johnson's unbeaten first 15. So before that season, they went to Fiji, to New Zealand, and Simon Brown, actually, one could say, I'm not sure if Simon's on the call. I know he was going to be, um, or hoping to be. Uh, you could say that he is our revenge on rugby school because he went there. He's now been to um, uh, coach, coaching their first 15 for, the last, uh, for 15 years. He'd been director of sport there. So we are actually part of the ongoing history of the bicentenary of rugby with a Radleyan right in the heart of it. And tours become uh, a big thing. Henry, do you want to just mention what we're doing with uh... Sure. Thanks, Claire. Um, just very briefly, just to um, let you all know that uh, obviously there hasn't been sort of a grand scale, scale international tour 
for quite some time at Radley, almost uh, 10 years thanks to COVID and the various changes. But uh, next year, the, the, the rugby team will be going to Argentina, which is hugely exciting for everyone involved. Um, I just wanted to let you all know that uh, obviously it's quite an expensive tour. I want it to be uh, available for everyone. So we'll be holding uh, the foundation and the rugby club sort of in tandem will be hosting uh, a fundraising gala dinner uh, on the 16th of March. It's going to be a fantastic evening with a sumptuous dinner, champagne, all the rest, and uh, and uh, raffles, auction prizes, and a special guest who I'm not allowed to share yet, but more news on that to come very soon. Uh, so uh, watch this space. Thanks very much. Thank you, Henry. So that's just a plug for the Argentina tour. Uh, and again, yes, they haven't been away for quite some time. But this New Zealand and Fiji tour was then followed by the uh, Peter Johnson's 1990 undefeated first 15. This is the first time in history that Radley had an undefeated season. The second was the 1995 one that Niall was talking about earlier. And then within a couple of years, everything was handed on to Richard Greed. Now, Richard couldn't be with us today because he's in Thailand and um, apparently his, uh, his party schedule um, doesn't allow him to fit time in for the Zoom call, which he was very reluctant about. He was very sad about, actually. Uh, but what we wanted to show you was that when Richard left last year, the baton obviously was passed on to Vic Wood and... Richard himself was honoured by the rugby club. That's great, Claire. Thank you very much. Um, you're, you're on mute at the moment, so I didn't know if you... Anyway, I guess what we wanted to say was um, thank you so much, Claire. That was really, really, really fascinating. It would be great now if anybody has any questions of Claire, that they're more than welcome to ask them now. Um, and we'll incorporate that into this session. Um, but if you don't have any if you don't have any questions now, that's fine. You can always ask them afterwards or you know, come to Radley and talk to Claire yourselves. But do do put your hand up if you want to ask anything of Claire. Oh, good. I mean, we've answered um, a lot of questions as we've gone, so that's been brilliant. Well, we managed to do it within the hour. I think that was, as I say, thanks again to Claire and to Nick and to Niall for joining us. The next Zoom will take place next year, and it's going to be on the theme of marionettes and drama at Radley. There'll be another fascinating talk um, from Claire. Um, thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. But thank you, and we'll see you soon, hopefully. Thank you for joining us. Check our channels for the latest news and events from the Radleyan Society.